Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 173, The Celt Cast Part 2. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content like extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Rose, Jacob, and Andre for signing up already. Hey, this September, I'm going to be at the Rose City Comic Con, and I'm speaking at the Monsters of Podcasting panel. So, if you're in Portland, or are into Comic Cons and like to travel to places like Portland, you should come and see the panel. And feel free to drop by afterwards and say things like, You don't look anything like I imagined you would. And, You're way better with editing software. And if you've been waiting for your swag pack, keep an eye on your mailbox. I had to order some more swag because we ran out. But now, every order has been sent. However, so many orders came in while I was waiting for the shipment that I just ran out again and I had to make another order. So, these have turned out to be more popular than I thought, and I've been developing quite the skill set for any future career I have as an envelope stuffer. For those of you who don't have a swag pack yet, let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered how bad my handwriting is? Well, if you order one of these things, you'll find out. And spoiler alert, you might find yourself saying, did Jamie hire a five-year-old to address his envelopes? Anyway, if you'd like one, you can order it over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And just so you know, I'm not making any money from these because I want everybody who wants one to be able to have one. So they're available at cost for just 10 bucks. All right, enough of that. Today, I'm continuing my quest to organize and bring all the stories back together. And so we're going to move the timeline forward to get us closer to the Vikings, and we'll also be talking more about the kingdoms that were active in the region that would later become Scotland. There were several of these kingdoms, and they're rarely discussed despite being extremely interesting. And we'll be focusing our story today on the two largest and most influential of the kingdoms, Dalriada and Fortrio. Before we start, I want to remind you that this area is severely understudied and we simply don't have many sources to draw from. Making things even more difficult, these northern kingdoms were organized in a way that we don't fully understand. While we use the terms king and kingdom, understand that these societies weren't organized feudally. It's more accurate to think of them as having a tribal organization. This means that the political logic that organized their power structures would be very different in important ways from the political logic that governed their Anglo-Saxon neighbors to the south. Because of this, the flow of power and the decisions made by those in power can sometimes seem counterintuitive to us, because we are much more comfortable thinking in terms of a feudal power structure. Now let's begin our talk with Dalriada. Once they come out of the mists in the 7th and 8th centuries, we find that there are three major tribes that hold the most power in the kingdom of Dalriada. And that kingdom, by the way, roughly stretched from northeastern Ulster in Ireland and into Argyll and Lochaber in Scotland. Within this kingdom, you have the Canel Lorne, the kin of Lorne, which held the rugged peripheral lands to the north, like the islands of Cole, Tyree, Mull, Iona, and Colonsey. The Kennel Gabron, or the Kin of Gabron, meanwhile, were based in the south. And the Kennel Ungasa, or the Kin of Ungasa, were mostly based in Isla. And these large tribal groups jockeyed for position and pushed for the coveted role of king. 
However, unlike the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, which appear to have sought power through consolidation of the central territories and then followed it up with hegemonic expansionism, the tribes of early Scotland were able to seize power by taking a more circuitous path. This is actually typical of many European tribal societies of this period. So while the kin of Lorne held the rugged and rural lands to the north, rather than the central wealthy territories, that didn't knock them out of the running the way it might have done in the Anglo-Saxon territories like Mercia. Instead, if the Canal Lorne were able to seize political power, their lands would become the new center of Dalriadan power. Now, let's talk about how these three tribes came into being, since they will be quite important for the political history of the Scots. The story of Dalriada starts at around 500 CE, which is about the same time that Britain was dealing with the early Anglo-Saxon settlements. It was that chaotic period after the utter collapse of the Western Roman Empire where most of Western Europe was dealing with the reshuffling of populations and states. There are several stories of the founding of Dalriada, and each story differs on the details, but what they all agree on was that the region was conquered by the Irish Scots. In the Song of the Scots, we're told of how there were three brothers, Fergus More, Ungus, and Lorne, and they conquered the region. There are tribes later on that bear the names of Ungus and Lorne, so they might have existed, but it is just as likely that the tribes were reaching back to establish their right to rule through a famous ancestor, much like how the Anglo-Saxons claimed to be descended from Woden. After all, it is entirely possible that the three brothers were just straight-up legends. It's impossible to tell exactly what happened there, because this period really is murky. But, sometime at around 500 CE, we're told of the arrival of the founding members of two of the three major tribes of Dalriada. And it might have happened exactly that way. The picture gets a little clearer when you get to the mid-6th century. There we get reports of the death of King Comgall of Dalriada, the grandson of Fergus More. He was one of the three Irish brothers who came over. Now, King Comgall had seven sons. However, when he died, it appears that the throne went to his own brother, Gabron, instead. And with King Gabron, we had the last of the founding members of the three major tribes of Dalriada. And... When we reach the death of King Gabron of Dalriada, which might have been linked to a conflict that was flaring up with Pickland, we start to approach something in the record that feels a bit like solid ground. Interestingly, unlike the other major tribes, Ungus and Lorne, the kin of Gabron didn't name themselves after their legendary ancestor, Fergus Moore, but instead chose his grandson, Gabron. It's an odd choice. But there's a lot about this area that's a little odd. And actually, the kin of Gabron's older brother, King Comgall, doesn't appear all that often in the record, despite the fact that he had seven sons. You would think that the Canel Comgall would actually be fairly powerful, but instead, we just hear a lot about the Canel Gabron. It's hard to say exactly why that happened and what it means, and I wish we knew exactly what was going on politically within Dalriada but I think it does provide a good example of how our assumptions when studying the political movements of tribal societies aren't a perfect match for this. There are things going on there that we just can't see, and that don't fit perfectly within the feudal mold that we often like to apply to this area of study. But whatever the case, it was Gabron's family that became one of the dominant forces in Dalriada, 
and it would continue to be for quite some time. And then, at last, we reach the slightly better documented 7th century, where we can be reasonably sure that the tribes of Gabron, Ungus, and Lorne held significant amounts of power over the kingdom of Dalriada. And all of them, at least according to legend, were descended from the three brothers who crossed the Irish Sea and initially took control of the territory. However, the people of Dalriada were not living in isolation, nor were they only interested in internal affairs. A good example of the culture that was growing, as well as the political wrangling that was taking place, can be found in 642, at the Battle of Strathcaron. There, King Domnall of Dalriada, who was the great-grandson of Gabron, went to war with the Brythonic kingdom of Strathclyde. Now, this is the same time that Northumbria was under the control of Aethelfred's sons. And actually, it's the same year that King Oswald fought King Penda, and then ended up being artfully displayed on whale stings. So, at the same time that Northumbria was becoming quite a problem, and Oswiu was right around the corner, the Scottish kingdom of Dalriada struck the British kingdom of Strathclyde. That's just one example of the conflict that was raging between the culturally Irish kingdom and their Brythonic and Pictish neighbors. Just like in the south, the battle for dominance was fierce and ongoing. But here, at Strathcaron, Dalriadan ambitions were dashed, and King Owain of Strathclyde killed King Domnall of Dalriada. Their expansionism was halted and Strathclyde suddenly became an important power player in the north. And the Gabron tribe, which had been so powerful in Dalriada, began to slip. Despite the loss, the kin of Gabron did continue to offer up leaders for a little while. But these leaders turned out to be colossal disappointments, and it wasn't long before there were internal challenges to the Canal Gabron's hold on power. And by the end of the 7th century, the Canal Lorne, a tribe that held the rural lands to the north, ousted the wealthy and formidable Canel Gabron from power. But their hold on power was not absolute, and it hadn't been all that long since the Gabron tribe held control over Dalriada. And it seems that they wanted it back. So in 701, we're told of how King Selbach of Dalriada, from the Lorne tribe, laid waste to the stronghold of one of his own septs at Donali. Destroying the castle of one of your own supporting families seems a bit strange. So what was going on here, and what might it tell us about these tribes? Like we talked about a few minutes ago, tribal governments in the north appear to have been an inversion of what we've been seeing towards the south, with even rural territories able to make power grabs and oust their wealthier cousins, if the timing was right. And while that system might help deal with the threat that can come with having just one single wealthy family handing down power within its own circle, regardless of whether or not the scion of that family was reported to be, quote, gibbering with demons, end quote, like what was happening in the South, having a tribal system where rival tribes can seize power and rejigger the way the whole system was working allowed that same medieval bugaboo to take hold. We have a return to dynastic infighting. So here we have King Selbach raising his troops and knocking down the stronghold of a family that's identified as a supporter of his own tribe, the Canel Lorne. So those were his subjects. 
What was happening there? Was one of the families breaking off and trying to support the Canel Gabron? Some scholars suspect that might have been what was happening. It's also possible that there was an internal fight for who was going to head up the Canel Lorn. Ultimately, what this record of King Selbach's attack suggests is that there were factions in Dalriada, even within the three primary tribal groups, and that the tribal leaders were having to sometimes resort to brutal tactics in order to keep the other families in line. So while we read about the three major tribes of Dalriada, and find it tempting to imagine them as monolithic family groups that move as one, we need to remember that these are families. Anyone with a large family can tell you how quickly factions can develop, even over minor things like pizza toppings or which pub to meet up at. Thinking that familial factions didn't happen in the past is crazy, especially when we know how much was at stake. So looking at Denali, it isn't all that surprising that we're seeing internal power structures, even within individual families. Honestly, there was probably a hell of a lot more of that going on than what was recorded. So that should give you a rough outline of what Dalriada was like. Meanwhile, the other major kingdom of the north, Pictland, is even more hazy. The Picts of the north covered a vast swath of territory. And like their neighbors in Dalriada, they lived in a confederation of tribes that were spread out over a great deal of land. The Picts make Dalriada look like a tight-knit and organized nation by comparison. They were a very loose confederation of tribes. There wasn't even a capital, but rather, the locus of power for the kingdom of Pictland shifted with whatever tribe and king was currently on top. In the 4th century, it looks like power was resting in the Strathurin area. And yet, several centuries later, when Columba visited King Bridey, the seat of power was then towards the north. And by the time of that massive battle at Dunachin in 685, when King Bridey became the king of all the Picts, it was clear that the seat of power was located at Fortriu. And there, it would remain. Which is why scholars refer to it as the Kingdom of Fortriu. But, unless you're a history geek who focuses specifically on this area, you probably didn't know that we call it the Kingdom of Fortriu. That's how little attention this area of history gets. But, now you know. If someone talks about the ancient Kingdom of Fortriu, they're talking about Pictland. Culturally, the two kingdoms, Dalriada and Fortriu, were quite different, and from what little we can glean from the record, they saw themselves as such. And there was a conflict raging in the north, both over who would control these kingdoms, and also over who would control the fortunes of the entire north. But things in the north were beginning to change. The changes were slow, as they often are, but we can begin to see them take shape in the early years of the 8th century. In 706, King Bridey of Pictland died. And while he wasn't exactly from the same family as the first King Bridey, he was the second King Bridey, so let's just call him King Bridey II of Pictland. And when King Bridey II of Pictland died, because this is Pictland and brothers and half-brothers tend to inherit the throne, Bridey's brother, Necton became the new king of Pictland. Necton's rule was important because it gives us solid evidence of how the Picts of Fortriu and the Scots of Dalriada were beginning to draw together. Those old lines between the kingdoms were starting to erode. The thing is that religious life for the region had been centered at the monastery of Iona for quite some time now. 
That's where the cult of St. Columba was based. And Iona is located just off the Isle of Mull, which is one of the islands controlled by the Canel Lorne tribe of Dalriada. So you had a major axis of Christian power located in Dalriada. But another big issue is the fact that the form of Christianity within Pickland was extremely influential for the rest of the far north. And that form was often decided by the king of the Picts. So it wasn't a simple matter of Iona choosing how to worship and everyone would then follow suit. Instead, there is this balance between the religious center of Iona, which was in Dalriada territory, and then the religious decisions of the king of the Picts in Fortriu. That means that the firm cultural and political boundaries between the kingdoms of Dalriada and Fortriu would be really difficult to maintain. They had common ground through religion, and they were also influencing each other through their decisions. And this became really clear when the issues of Easter and haircuts came up. As you might remember, back in the early conversion days, there was this big rift between the Catholic Church and the Celtic Church over the dating of Easter and how to properly cut your hair. Basically, the Celtic Church held to the old method of dating, which the Catholic Church used to follow, but then they started using a new way and said, hey, you guys all have to use this way too. And the Celtic Church refused. They wanted to stick with the old way. And fun fact, both ways of calculating the date of Easter are ridiculously complex and sort of feels like someone was having a stroke while they were writing down the rules. Episode 127, The Synod of Whitby, touches upon it. But honestly, unless you have a protractor and a graphic calculator, you'll probably not be able to work it out. And it really only varies by a few days anyway. The whole thing is a mess. But the old method was a mess that the Celtic monks were at least used to. They'd have to learn a whole new system with this new one, so you can understand why they were reluctant to give it up. And then you have the issue of haircuts. Apparently, the Celtic stylists were getting it all wrong, and they weren't in keeping with Matthew 25.6, which clearly stated, quote, And lo, the Lord said unto his followers, Who cut your hair? You look like total scrubs. And a scrub is the kind of guy who can't get no love from me. End quote. Now, we aren't 100% sure what the heretical and sinful Celtic haircut looked like, but we think that they shaved everything except for a strip that went over the top of the head, from ear to ear. Sort of like a hairband that you might have worn in middle school. Whereas the Romans were all about the Friar Tuck look, essentially male pattern baldness on steroids. But this clear heresy, see what I did there? Well, it was such a big deal for Rome that when pagan King Aethelfrith killed over a thousand monks, Bede treated it as divine retribution for the calendar and fashion violations. This was still a big deal even a century later, and the Celtic church still had not bent to Rome's demands. And King Nectin of Fortriu had decided to investigate, and presumably, wanted to put the matter to bed once and for all. So he sought expert opinion and began to write letters. And that put him in correspondence with the Venerable Bede. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. To think that this king was in direct correspondence and actually developing a sort of friendship with one of our major sources for this period. I love it when things like this happen. For me, it's like the history version of finding out that Mark Maron and Louis C.K. are friends. It reminds you that they're just people, and makes them feel more real and relatable. But anyway, so King Necton started asking about how monks were supposed to cut their hair, and what was up with Easter. 
He was also hoping to build a stone church, and asked if it was possible that they loan him some architects so he could build it in the Roman manner. And this led to a series of correspondence with our favorite monk from Monk Wermuth and Jero. Now, Necton's interest in spiritual matters might well have been political. Based on what happened to the Welsh monks, angering the Roman church did seem a bit dangerous. But there's another possibility for why he might have wanted to do this. He might have been motivated by personal tragedy. Because it's thought that his two sons died right at around this point in time. And this is complete speculation on my part. We don't have any diaries. But it is possible that with the loss of his two sons, he might have turned to God. It's a common reaction. But whatever his motivations, a few years later, in 711, presumably after hearing some rather convincing arguments, King Necton of Fortriu proclaimed that the Roman church had the right of it when it came to matters of Easter and of haircuts. And let's be real, that Celtic haircut did sound pretty stupid. And now, with grooming and scheduling matters settled, the Picts of Fortriu were brought within the fold of the Roman church. Interestingly, on that same year, 711, we're told that Bede actually played a role in ending the wars that had been raging between the English and Picts for decades. Seriously, apparently Bede did that. Though, it wasn't immediate. Instead, it looks like it was more of a long-term project, because a year after that initial letter was sent, in 712, we're told that an elder man named Bjorfrith defeated a Pictish army in the central plain of Scotland near the Middle Forth, and that probably stopped further Pictish advances south. So we're starting to see power structures solidifying in the north, with firm boundaries developing. King Necton was building upon what his predecessors like King Bridey II had provided him. And because he had such a long rule, and the attention he was placing upon unifying the disparate confederations of tribes in Pictland into a proper kingdom of Fortriu, we're seeing a great deal of stability come out of his reign, with even their relations with Northumbria becoming less tenuous. Several years later, in 716, independent of King Necton's actions, the monks of Iona chose to switch over to the Roman system as well. And again, we can see vague shadows of some form of unity being hinted at. Though, it wasn't all kumbaya. <laughs> there were still conflicts to be had. By this point in the record, we haven't heard all that much about Dalriada for a while. And one possible reason for this is that they were dealing with some internal problems. King Selbach of the Canal Lorn was still ruling at this point, but it appears that he was struggling with the ambitions of the Canal Gabron. And in 719, the kin of Gabron actually managed to defeat King Selbach's navy somewhere in Dalriadic waters. And this is actually the first recorded sea battle in Britain. But what it tells us is that things in Dalriada were really falling apart into tribal warfare, at least right now. Now, you might be wondering what was going on in Wales, since I haven't touched upon them in a couple episodes. And honestly, I'm wondering too. My guess is that there was some degree of infighting and probably some stern looks at their eastern borders. But our records for this period are sparse, and we just really don't know much about what was going on there. But back in Fortriu, and the Kingdom of the Picts, King Necton had been ruling for well over a decade. And he had enough. He wanted to enter religious life. His sons were dead, 
And while we don't know anything about his wife or what happened to her, the fact that he wanted to become a monk is rather suggestive. Or maybe he just wanted one of those new fancy haircuts. Whatever the case, in 724, Necton abdicated after ruling for 18 years, and he entered monastic life. He left the kingdom to Drest, who was probably his half-brother's son. And I'll leave it there for now. And next time, we'll pick up with a tough-on-crime policy that got out of hand, some rather serious warfare, and the realization that the March of Progress isn't so much of a march, but more of a drunken stagger. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everything, and you can find links to all of that in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. 